Hello, friends, and welcome to our 10th Night Rule. It was very fun to get a chance to talk with Ethan Hirschenfeld. He's a comedian and an actor. We talked a lot about the arts and opera and theater and acting, touched a little bit on some spirituality and some psychology as well. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to uh, talk with Ethan for the hour. Um, I find it to be a very hilarious and very insightful and interesting guy. So uh, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed today's Night Rule a fraction as much as I did. For today's intro, we will again be listening to some Koshi Maharu. We'll be listening to about 90 seconds of Klepisidra Sanatorium. And then uh, since we do have a vocalist of great repute on, I wanted to bust out the big guns. So for the outro, we'll be listening to uh, Koshi Maharu's rendition of Ave Maria. So without any further ado, please... Get nestled and uh, enjoy the show. I'm so pleased to be joined for Night Rule by uh, comedian and actor and performer Ethan Hirsch- Hirschenfeld. Um, been following his work for a little while here, and he's a very uh, hilarious and intelligent and insightful man. Uh, you can see his latest comedy album, I believe it's called Thug Thug Jew. Is that correct, Ethan? That is right. Thug Thug Jew. It's, uh, that's the album. Can you, can you explain the, uh, the thinking behind that title a little bit? Um, I wish I could. It just came to me in a dream, a fever dream. And no, it's um, so as an actor, I play a lot of bad guys and a lot of uh, different ethnicities, ethnic bad guys. And so I do some jokes about that. And one of the jokes involves a, um, a realization that the a series of auditions my agent sends me out on, like in order of the roles, it's thug, thug, Jew, and then again, thug, thug, Jew. <laughs> and then the uh, the earth-shattering punchline on that joke is thug, thug, Jew. That's duck, duck, goose for the ethnic actor. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Pe- people would have seen you in, um, I think you were in um, The Plot Against America, Boardwalk yes. Empire, Girls, yes. Blue Bloods, Damages. I don't think enough people know about Damages. When I saw that you were in that, I, have to, I, really, I thought I had to go back and maybe check it out because that was kind of an underrated show in a bizarre way. Um, yeah, I don't know. It got... 
I think it did really well. Glenn Close either won or was was uh, nominated a bunch of times for some awards for her performance as Patty Hughes, the um, sort of uh, the hero, villain hero of the thing. And um, people, yeah, I don't know. What was it? On? It got it got great reviews. I don't. Yeah, no, it, it got a lot. Of, it was it was it was out there that like name wise, but I feel like it kind of it didn't it didn't end up in a weird way to my mind with the following it kind of deserved because oh, it was yeah. kind of ahead of its time in a lot of ways, like the way it treated kind of um, the timeline, the way the story kind of unfolded, and, and so many great performances in it too. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, I got to. I got to meet Glenn Close in in the uh, in the makeup trailer. That was exciting. Our dogs sniffed each other. Um, that was wow. And um, I got to work with uh, some great actors on it. And uh, I got to watch Ted dance. And my first day there for shooting, I got to see him just doing a scene, and he was just masterful. Um, yeah, he's so, great. And uh, yeah, he's amazing. He's, he's. I mean, I wrote. I think Rose Byrne is really phenomenal too, as the as yeah. the other lead. Um, Absolutely. Can you can you can you get me her number? No, um, I'm just joking. <laughs> you never have to. You, 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 you never have to say just joking when you're talking to a comedian. Okay. <laughs> Good. I mean, you can. It's fine if you want to say it. I'm just saying you never have to say that because that's the assumption. The assumption is you're joking. Yeah, and certainly my friends uh, will have the same philosophy when it comes to all of my statements. Um, so just to kick things off, I, I know uh, I was listening to you and I've, I, you were talking about opera recently, and I know that you're an opera singer. You've performed, um, I think, uh, in a few different places, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a singer for a long time. I, I sang in a lot of different theaters in many different places. And uh, that was really the focus of my... Uh, professional life for um for a long time yeah so i i i moved on from that being about five years ago i switched my focus to the comedy and the tv stuff mm. but um but yeah it was a good it was a long stretch um as a singer that was my my real focus as it has to be to do that well that's one of those things like a lot of things but um kind of like uh like a martial art or a sport uh, where you got to really keep at it and keep working at it and uh, or you fall out of shape with it so it's it's really like that yeah of course yeah um i mean you know i'm i think i'm a similar to a lot of my listeners in that my only exposure in north america you know to high culture was uh, or to opera was the pagliacci episode of seinfeld so I wanted to ask you, um, you know, someone acquainted with kind of the the arts and and, cult and the cultural output of and, and, and kind of cultural cultural. What am I trying to look for? The cultural yeah. milieu of different countries. Uh -huh. um, I think you probably have a, a pretty good understanding of the contrast of how kind of the arts are treated in in different places, mm. and uh, and and maybe how some places maybe invest a lot more in those yeah. uh, pursuits than America? Like, is that, do you think that America has a lot to learn from other places about um, kind of public support and for, for the arts? Um, yeah, I mean, the big contrast is if you look, I sang a bunch in Germany, and if you look at the budget for, this is a, a statistic, you can confirm it. I don't know if it's true, but I've that hasn't stopped me from repeating it for 20 years, but um, the city of Berlin alone has a much larger arts budget than all of the United States. So public support for the arts is part of the understanding of what a country does uh, in, in Europe, especially in Germany. Um, public sub subsidies uh, for the arts. So 
Um, as a result, every town of any size has its own opera company and also has a theater company and a ballet company. You go, just go to, just Google, go to any medium or small city on Google and look up the, the theater and the theater will have a, a stable, um, by which I mean like a repertory company. It's not like these, they put on a show and they hire actors for it. No, they have a troupe. They have an acting troupe in their theater that are paid. They paid a monthly salary. They have uh, health benefits and they put on a season of, of theater and they, and they put on a season of opera and ballet. And it's, um, it's an integral part of, of every city. So I, I had a contract for a while. Well, I didn't stay that long because I wasn't used to being a fixed member of a company. I was more in a freelance thing, but for a few for half a year, I was in Bremen. Bremen is a northern city, not far from Hamburg in the north of Germany. Beautiful little city. Um, the very old part of it, which you feel like you're in Disneyland or in Munchkinland. It's this tiny uh, little neighborhood that, you know, it was for whatever reason, it escaped being bombed to smithereens, that little area. Beautiful little town and a vibrant theater. And, uh, you know, they have a nine, nine or 10 month season for all of these arts. And uh, they don't depend on. So the difference is, if you if you look at the 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 opera culture or the opera business in America, what takes the place of that public money uh, in America is private donations. So in neither of those two setups do ticket sales pay for the whole thing um, by any stretch. So in Germany, the government is writing a check to the opera companies, and in America, it's private donors and, and um, charitable organizations. Uh, if you look at the playbill at any opera house or ballet or symphony, you'll see the names of very big insurance companies and uh, probably oil companies. Uh, that, that's who pays for it in America because the productions are very expensive and ticket sales account for whatever percentage it is. If, is it 15, 20, 30? I don't know. I, don't, I doubt that, they're, that it rises to the level of even covering half of the budgets. As a result also, I will say that uh, the singers, at least on a freelance basis, I think they're better paid in my experience. Like I worked a lot in Italy where I, there's also state or there was state uh, sponsorship of the arts. Uh, the performers are paid better than they are in the States. Um, those, those people who work as a member of the company, it's a modest living, but you can make a living doing it. Whereas that, that, that model doesn't even exist in the States. There are none of those theater companies where you can be a working actor making a decent, like self-supporting wage where you can get the apartment, get your health care and your food and do your work. That just doesn't exist for an actor in America. And is it safe to say that um, that's reflected in, in kind of the, the general um, kind of ethos of, of performers in, in both places, like a performers in, in places like Europe where there's a little more funding are they are they really living like a whole different kind of creative life than than artists in um in the states you think, think it's probably fair to say to right hustle. yeah they they don't have to yeah they don't have to hustle in the same way like most people doing a performance career in the states have to have a second job um i would say yeah. most i mean forget most 95 sure. percent, like 95 percent. and over there that's just not the case since you have your job and you have your rehearsal hours and you have your performances laid out for the year and you're getting paid um um enough to like like i said to pay for rent and, and your basic necessities um yeah probably can't save anything but you can live here's one downside i will say to that system over there um because of the government funding i think in part because of that 
um, I feel like the decisions artistically in, in the theater and in the opera over there in Germany, I'm speaking of, the, the decisions there aren't market driven. And that can be a bad thing because starting in like the 60s, there was a movement um, in Germany called Regie Theater, which literally means director theater. Regie Theater, which means that the, the critical aesthetic decisions that would drive the entire look and feel of, of a production were all from the, the director as opposed to from the playwright or from the actor. And is that is that due to the influence of Brecht? I know I know when they when he was working back in Germany, um, they they had a very strict kind of auteur approach to all those productions. It, it could. I, I wish I could give you a, a good answer to that. I, mm. I don't. I don't know. But um, but what happened is aesthetically they got stuck in the '60s, in the late '60s and the early '70s, and they're still stuck there now. If you go and watch an opera production in Germany today in a medium-sized theater, even at a big theater like in Munich or in Berlin, you're likely to see the opera set in some contemporary setting, like it could contemporary by which I mean, you know, far removed from when it was written. So like you would see a Mozart opera, but it's set like, you know, the cliche in Germany would be they would set it in a concentration camp. Right. And they would in a very heavy handed way, draw the audience's attention to the analogies between the time it was written and that horrible period in history even if it's not that they'll they'll do these very ham-handed um explicit uh update updates of the operas and the aesthetics are just they can be very repetitively in a very dull way like a lot of over lighting and overly made up and very stiff costumes um kind of maybe hard for me to describe what it looks like or feels like, but it can be a difficult experience for the performers and for the audience. Although, although the audiences over there have been beaten into submission by decades of this. So they think it's normal. Mm. Sounds, sounds a little overwrought to me. Yes. It's, 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 it's very, uh, it's tortured. Um, So that what you lose then, and I've, I've had to be in some of these productions, what you lose then is a focus on the actual, drama the the actual human dramas going on which are interesting enough and the the focus should be on the music and on the words and in in those things it gets the focus becomes on the concept it becomes a a conceptual take on a Mm. on a a Mm. work that that can distract yeah the type of play that you probably maybe don't fully understand unless you read the playbill which uh, i had a theater professor tell me that was always the worst kind of play even he would never read the playbill because his philosophy was like, you know, I'm here to watch your performance. If I need, if I need to read something else to understand what I'm watching, yeah. you're not doing your job. Yeah, I would agree 100%. I, I like that professor already. I try not to read that stuff before I, I watch a show. Um, and also it, that, that brings up a, a kind of another, another way to say what I'm saying, which is that those productions don't serve the drama. Those, the things I'm talking about, that regie theater, that approach doesn't end up serving the drama by which I mean, it doesn't, the director, from, from my point of view, the director's job should be to illuminate the work and bring it on its feet and show those human interactions that are already in there. It's a hard enough job to make those things clear, to make the scenes um, engaging and clear and to tell the story clearly. That is hard enough. What these people do frequently is they'll, they'll get so excited about their idea for what period the thing's going to take place that that becomes the whole focus. They don't actually end up fleshing out the story for the audience, which is what their job is. 
Let me just hear me out here for a second, though. Like, just like think, picture this, okay? Ibsen's Enemy of the People set in a 1970s discotheque. Okay, just imagine that in your mind's eye. That is, that is, that is amazing. That's amazing. That is amazing. That's literally what I think the pitch sounds like at these opera companies. I feel like that's exactly when the director is pitching themselves with this project. That's 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 about as deep as it goes. Um, a few years ago, they 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 had a new production of Rigoletto at the Metropolitan Opera, where a lot of this this aesthetic has crept in, especially under this new regime. Um, which started, I guess, a decade ago. But they took Rigoletto, which, you know, it's one of my favorite operas, great opera. If you don't know it, and you're not, if you're interested in getting into opera or, or hearing beautiful opera um, with a great story also, that's a great place to start. But they updated it to a casino in Las Vegas in the 70s or whatever. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I, you just, you know, you want to just fall asleep. It's, it's but, you know, I guess audience, some audiences like it and they appreciate the attempt, but um, it's a distraction. Yeah, there's some, I mean, there's definitely examples where it works really well. Like I really love the, uh, the Ian McKellen, Richard III film that, they, that they, they set the whole thing in Nazi Germany. I thought that was quite strong. Oh, um, okay. there's, that, there's that version of Titus as well. That's kind of um, very anachronistic, but I think it's, it's definitely overdone by this point. It's, it is kind of a little bit of a knee jerk um, idea yeah. that I think people have. It's like somehow by, by, uh, changing the setting you won't have to kind of do harder work to like you say kind of get into the blood and guts of the drama itself yeah i was in one of the first plays i was ever in in college i was in a production of a gilbert and sullivan show called patience which is about these this i think it's about well when they wrote it in victorian england there was some debate or some cultural um war going on between the the aesthetics and the whatever the other people were and so this director had the idea that he was going to set it in 1950s america so the beatniks his idea was that the beatniks were like the aesthetic and it seemed to make sense and that was my first exposure to that kind of thing so eh, it seemed okay so i'm not gonna say it's a terrible approach but it's it's a little bit superficial mm. <laughs> um, um i heard you talking on um during office hours about uh, beethoven's uh, opera oh, yeah. Fidelio, um, and yeah. you know, I, again, uh, like most people in North America, I'm I'm more used to getting my my culture distributed via monochromatic palette by uh -huh. a, a multinational corporation. So, as someone who I think speaks very eloquently about the about opera and the arts, and I think it seems like you've had a lot of really strong personal experiences and reactions to things. Um, what are some other maybe moments within the world of opera that um, are particularly uh, intriguing to you that, that you can maybe comment on that, that and introduce people to? For me, as a performer, a lot of what I was engaged in was like, I was listening to the people who were on stage next to me. So I had moments where I was blown away by the, by the artistry or the, the vocal, like the vocal heft of some people. Like a real highlight for me was I got to sing in a, in a production in, in Genoa in Italy of the Benjamin Britten opera, Billy Budd, which. Oh, wow. It's, it's based on, yeah. It's based on a Herman Melville story. And it's a, um, it's a great, it's a, it's a short story uh, or a novella length thing, I guess, by, by Melville. It's worth reading and listening to that opera. Um, it can be tough on the ear at first. It's not melodic in, in the traditional sense. You, you, it's hard to walk away from that humming any of the tunes, but I was in that production and there were three, I had a small role 
Um, but I, there were three real heavy hitter uh, American uh, singers. Um, there was, uh, anyway, the, the tenor was this guy, Bob Brubaker. And um, Robert Brubaker, I, I, I would suggest just try to look him up and listen to him singing. I, it was an amazing thing. He sang the role of Captain Veer and that story of Billy Budd is narrated by the captain. He's telling a story from many years ago when he was the captain of a ship and there was a tragic incident that occurred with a, a member of his crew named Billy Budd who was kind of challenged in, in some emotional and developmental ways or something. And so it ends up tragically, but this guy Veer is recounting the story. And this guy, Bob Brubaker, he had such a, such a stentorian voice, like a tenor, but I mean, when you're standing next to him on stage and he's letting it rip, it is just, it's, uh, you know, it blows your hair back and uh, a beautiful singing, but just loud. I mean, impressively, <laughs> impressively loud. And the thing with opera, if you don't uh, know about it, is it's, it's un unamplified. That's the, that's the trick. So the vocal training is all about how to be able to make a, a beautiful and consistent tone that's audible over the, the, the noise of an orchestra. So and in that same production was um, Samuel Ramey, who's a bass who's very famous. And if you don't know his work, Samuel Ramey for many decades was the world's greatest bass. So he was doing the role of the villain, which is a great role also. And then the guy, Billy Budd was, was by a guy named Dwayne Croft, who's a, a world-class baritone. So the three of them on stage together, that was incredible. But uh, I, and so that's, that's, uh, that's one um, moment or experience that stands out for me. Um, and uh, also that the fact that one might picture it as a very serious art form, but there was a lot of like, I played one of these uh, um, officers on the ship and the two other officers were played by another American and then an English singer. And we had a lot of moments of what they call, uh, you know, cracking up or corpsing, they call it in England. You know, those moments on stage where it's very serious, but the, the actors are on the verge of just <laughs> peeing, you know, peeing themselves from laughing. We had those moments where, because it, it's just funny, because you're there singing this very serious moment, but you're, you're wearing, you know, you're in tights and you're, you got to, you have wigs on. And <laughs> you're, you're dressed up like, you know, it's like Halloween and we would just do stuff to crack each other up. You know, you'd make a face or you'd do whatever it was to kind of, uh, and, and then, the, you know, backstage, you, you would be able to hold it just till the second you were, you were out of sight of the audience and then you just crack up. So there's, that, there's that kind of, um, I don't know boyish or schoolboy uh, thing going on uh, in the midst of uh, the high, high art, if you want to call it that. Well, I think that's pretty important. I, I, I think a lot of the best actors understand that, you know, that that aspect of kind of play and, and make believe is, is always really there. I mean, I think that's part of the play of it. Like I know there was a story uh, from the set of The Sopranos where uh, James Gandolfini was doing a scene for the first time with one of the actors uh, and, and basically just looked at him and he said, do you ever feel like so silly doing this? And, and James yeah. Gandolfini is just like all the time, all yeah. the time. <laughs> well, he's a great example of uh, someone who's so good at it. And then I got to meet him because a, a friend of mine worked on that show. He's one of the guys who created Damages. 
So I got to talk to him. He doesn't sound like, he didn't sound like Tony Soprano. He's just oh. a very serious actor who got very associated with that role because he was so great at it. But he's just a guy pretending. And, and that's my approach. I'm glad you said that about how important that, that kind of play thing is. My approach and my belief about performance is that it is make-believe and that should be embraced. I, I'm not a uh, student of the, uh, you know, method or those those approaches that are deeper in a way and and you know is that reflected in my, in my career choices <laughs> as far as what i play maybe but i don't think so i think um i think just imagination is what it's all about you just have to, have to imagine yourself into the situation and credibly portray that's my belief i mean other people have the other approach and they they do it incredibly well so i think you can you can you can do it lots of ways yeah, I think, I mean, acting is definitely a profession that accommodates a diversity of approaches. Um, yeah. I don't know if you heard that really funny story about uh, Dustin Hoffman and, and yes. Laurence Olivier on Marathon yes. Man. Yeah. Do you want to relate that to the listeners that maybe haven't heard it? Because I always thought it was hilarious. Um, or I can. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the punchline, you know, so it's like before a big scene and Dustin Hoffman's like doing push-ups and, and uh, jumping rope and Olivier says, what are you, what are you doing? And he says, you know, I'm... I'm preparing for the scene and Olivier says something like well why don't you just try acting something along yeah which is um, uh, yeah. yeah which is a great it's a kind of it's a kind of story that always makes actors laugh um yeah I, I am really fascinated in like the diverse like the different approaches that actors take when preparing for a role I think it's really fascinating to kind of find out how different people um kind of get into the psychology of of their, the characters they're portraying and also the drama of like the moments they're going through. Like, um, I think, I think you probably like prepare only to a certain extent. I, I, I listened to Mark uh, Maron's interview with Frank Langella recently. And he said, oh, yeah. you know, you prepare, you pre prepare, prepare, but then you have to just like jump into the abyss. You just have to leap. You have to jump off the cliff right into the moment. Um, can you, can you talk maybe a little bit more because I am interested in it um, about your approach to, to acting and, and characterizations. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with, with Langella, because at that point, once you're there and they say um, action, you, you can't do anything but say your words, really. So I think all the preparation, I don't know who it was. I heard uh, someone talking about the, the primacy of the, the words. So all you, all you have there is your words and your relationship to the words that you've developed from studying them and preparing them and repeating them and playing around with them. Um, I think I lean heavily on that. That's certainly from, from the opera training. Um, you have the, the notes and the word. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I have nothing, I have nothing coherent. To no, say. no, no. I mean, well, an actor's first job, I think for a lot of actors is, is, is to interpret the text and come up with, yeah your own understanding of what the text is trying to accomplish and your own, your own kind of version of like, like I think, I think interpreting the text and, and trying to like honor the work of the author, as opposed to say, like there's some actors that just come out and say, you know, oh, I base every character on myself and right. I'm just really, you know, it's really just all from me. And I think, you know, that might, that might work to a certain extent, but um, I, think, me... I think a lot, a lot of my favorite actors, I think are pretty text, text focused. Yeah. I'm definitely, it's it's weird also because like the the stuff I've been doing as a, like as a stand-up comic, you get up there and you're you're telling jokes and you're relating stuff that you've written yourself. And 
for me, I, you know, I'll do that for 10 minutes at a stretch, 20, or in the case of my album recording for an hour. And so that's one scale of performance. The TV roles that I've been doing for the last few years, it's on a very different scale. It can be a big moment with the, you know, it can even be with a few hundred background actors and all sorts of stuff going on. But we're talking about minutes, minutes of text. So it's a very different feeling um, as far as the preparation and the, the weight of the lift. Like there's an adrenaline, there's an adrenaline thing that happens in both cases. Like with the, I got to do a, a, a part in a movie back in October, uh, in November rather, um, a Netflix thing called Red Notice. And I did a ton of preparation on it. And then there I was, big set, big room, outdoor scene full of people and you know, the tech crew, there's hundreds of people there and all eyes and all the attention, all the focus is on you at that moment. And they say action and it's kind of a, it's a funny, um, I, I think Langella really, he really nails it there. You can't do anything at that moment, but just do it. There's no thought about anything for me at that moment, but imagining, I'm just in that, just imagining my way into that situation and into those words and just delivering them. Um, I've already done a lot of preparation work with the text, um, just getting, getting my head around what, 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 what it means and what the key to it is and what the audience has to get out of it. So I really do have that sensation in the moment when the, when the thing is filming of, of just, I think of just behaving, which I think is what you're supposed to do. Uh, you know, they say that's one of those early acting lessons. They say acting is doing. So you just have to do whatever the scene is, just do it. And here's the other thing, which is, which is worth, worth uh, underlining. The casting process for these projects is pretty elaborate and extensive. They look at a lot of photos of people, step one. They look at a lot of tape of the people, step two. Then they look at a lot of submissions of the actual scene that, that have been sent their way through, you know, agents put it out to their clients. So they invite people to then submit. Then from those dozen or two dozen ones that they've looked at those submissions they'll send a few of them to the actual director and the producer then that's a final selection of the of who they want for the role my point is that they've already decided that you are perfect for this role so the pressure of like oh man how am i gonna credibly inhabit this thing that that's out the window because there is no there's zero pressure at that point you are that thing you you've just you know you've gone through a sieve just a few particles have fallen out and then you're the chosen, you know, grain of rice or whatever for that part. That's it. They know you already look like it. Just don't fuck it up. I mean, that's on some level, that's, I'm talking about it on the level where I'm doing it at this point. Sure. I'm doing, I'm doing these featured, they call them guest star roles sometimes on these shows, but that's highfalutin. Um, they can be featured parts. Sometimes they recur in a couple of episodes at this point. I'm hoping obviously to, to, to land a recurring thing or have my own show but at this level that all that concern about how am I going to transform myself into this character that's gone because you don't have to they've chosen they've said you know this guy Ethan this, holy smokes this guy looks exactly like what I was imagining this character to look like so 
Yeah, I, ima- I mean, an actor is being notoriously a little bit neurotic. I'm sure it's it's hopefully comforting when you're when you've gone through all that rigmarole and you've got to that point to say, look, like I'm the guy or I'm the girl they they wanted, so I'm here for a reason. Yeah, in fact, I have a friend who's an actor, an excellent uh, actor who's on Broadway and a lot of TV and other stuff. A, f- a friend of mine named Rufus Collins, and he he gave me a great piece of advice once that he got from another acting teacher, and I, I hope I'm not misquoting, but it was basically like everything I just described. You should, as an actor, you will be doing yourself a favor to understand and acknowledge and internalize all of that the second you step into the audition room. Meaning, for those five minutes, you are that character. They've brought you in there because they need someone for the role. For those five minutes, you're the only person on earth who is that character. You don't have to worry about, like, you know, how am I going to become this guy. I am that guy. That's it. I am that character for those five minutes. And, you know, then, then watching my audition, they'll decide, I guess they'll decide, do they agree? But, but um, undeniably for those few minutes when you're in the audition room and any actors who are listening to that, to this, I found that really helpful and empowering. You're just going in there. That's another way to phrase it. You're going in there to give them a good option. They, they, they have a tough job, those casting people on the other side of the table. They're trying to figure out, Jesus, how can I, I got to find some people who are good for this role. You're there to give them a good option. So that's maybe not exactly the same point, but it's a way to spin it to the positive. Um, Psychologically, the other thing that does. Well, it's very important because the audition process is, uh, I mean, it's a word I use too much, but it's quite, it can be quite Kafkaesque, I imagine. Oh. Um, Or not, maybe not Kafkaesque, but definitely like, uh, it's, it's difficult, I'm sure, to go through like multiple auditions for something. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to think about the Kafka angle on that. But um, but um, yeah, there is a sense that there's this giant machine that's operating and, you, you know, you, you can feel like a small thing in that machine. But but what I the other thing my friend Rufus said in the context of that spiel about how to how to how to just acknowledge that you're the one person. You're, you are that character for those moments because no one else can be. The other way to think of it is don't go in the room um, asking for anything. The psychological minds, the mindset going in there typically would be, I want to get this part. I got to get this part. I need this part. I'd love to get this part. I have to get this part. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. You're going in there like a big, you know, like a big uh, hungry baby. Mm. But instead, if you can flip that and, and again, just uh, embrace the idea that I'm here to give them something. I'm giving them an option. I'm giving you a good option. I'm here to give you yeah. something. And you're That's, there to collaborate. You're there to collaborate. You're there to be part of like a collaborative process. Yeah, if they want to work that way, and some casting directors do, they want to give you some some suggestions for the next take. Then for sure, yeah. But just to go in there as a giver rather than as a taker, that can be a powerful uh, switch to flip. Mm, that's really interesting um just while we're still on acting uh, and we're talking about you know kind of just jumping into the moment like i think one actor um that really exemplifies that very very well also in the sopranos is Edie falco um and i was always shocked because i was watching interviews with her in the last year where they would ask her you know oh but this there was this incredible scene this incredible episode and she literally just seemed to have no memory of any of it like, oh, she, yeah, seems like it's, she seems like some kind of mensch that just is literally like this incredible actor that has incredible yeah. honesty on screen, yeah. but she's just in that moment, in that moment, and then just moves on right afterwards, which totally just I, blows my mind. I love that. I love that because I think that's that's what it should be in a way. Uh, you're giving it everything at that moment. You're leaving it there, and it's not a, it's not for anything else but that moment. So it's it's very true, and it's very uh, 
it's like uh, that lightning in a bottle thing and it's gone. Um, although maybe that's not what lightning in a bottle is. Yeah, I guess that is. You get it on screen and you get it on film and that's that's the end of it. That reminds me of my um, my gripe with uh, sports news where they would, you know, try to get a player to comment on, <laughs> comment on the game. And I always, I was always kind of dumbfounded by why, why do I want to hear this guy talk about his incredible, like, even, you know, anybody, like I, I, I grew up, you know, I played basketball pretty seriously and I was a big fan of it, but I don't really care what, I didn't care what Larry Bird had to say about his performance in the finals against the Lakers. The, the thing speaks for itself. I mean, Jesus, it's not about words at that point. And if it is about words, the guy who should be supplying the words about it is not the guy who played it. Like, yeah. we, need, we need critics to talk about Edie Falco's performance. That's what a good critic does. They illuminate the performance. But why should the performer have that added burden of having to talk about their own performance? It's, it's actually something we've seen more of. Like, I mean, there was actually a hot minute maybe about 10 years ago. I don't know when that Mel Gibson movie Apocalypto came out, but and it's still something we see once in a while where you'll see like a trailer for something and, and they'll show you images and then they'll have like the director talking about it, which I've always oh, yeah. just found like incredibly weird. And, and yeah. it's like, I'm watching this trailer for Apocalypto and then Mel Gibson is just sitting there in a chair being like, it's really a story about a man trying to save his family. Yeah. And I'm just like, right. what the fuck? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it reduces, I was an English major and, and I, I came to feel over the course of doing that and maybe a little more acutely afterwards how um, it, violent is overstating it but there is a, a feeling that you're ripping this thing apart that that already speaks what it has to say mm. and especially as an English major it's weird because you're using words to to try to get at what these words mean at least with an yeah. art critic or if you're studying art history at least you're applying words to a, a, a visual medium but when you're applying words to a words medium it just it, it's bizarre and it seems superfluous and although like a good critic like i said can can raise that to a level like anthony lane the 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 uh the film critic in the mm -hmm. new yorker who's brilliant or I mean, I guess there's there's lots of. I have a friend, John Anderson, who's a film uh, critic. You, you can I think stuff Wes Wesley Morris is another really great film critic out there. He writes yeah. for the New York Times now. Yeah, so people who who bring humor and and uh, storytelling to their to their takes on, on these works of art. That's a beautiful work. That's a beautiful art form in and of yeah. itself. Yeah, I suppose like many things in life, those who are, are exceptional. Um, or a credit to that activity and, and the rest are perhaps a detriment, but so it goes. I mean, it, it kind of comes back to the, the whole thing about, you know, do I need to read the playbill to understand what I'm about to see? And I feel like, honestly, I mean, this might sound a little uh, cheesy, but you know, I feel like with, uh, with any work of creative output, ultimately um, the most important relationship is the relationship between the artist and the audience. And when you have someone else come in kind of interrogating the the work and yeah. interpreting it for the audience. It, it's just adding this other element to the mix that may actually just, and oftentimes really just detract, you know? Yeah, I agree completely. I heard an incredible thing this morning, which I, I, I urge your listeners to check out. So uh, the show Democracy Now!, which is a, a morning news show, Amy Goodman, the host, who's been doing it for 25 years or 
around that. In 2010, she interviewed David, uh, John le Carré. So I forget his, his real Oh, the uh, famous uh, mystery yeah. or rare, like kind of like espionage thriller yeah, novelist, right? Exactly. Yeah, the spy novelist uh, who just died a few weeks ago at 89. Incredible guy. But the interview is incredible. And one of the things he says in it, so watch it. It's the Chris, I think it was rebroadcast just now on Christmas Day. Mm. Um, John le Carré interviewed by Amy Goodman on Democracy Now. Um, but he says, and at that point he is around 80, and he says he has decided to step away from giving interviews. He says that he, he, he believes he had said everything he wanted to say in that format that he calls it the art, like the art form of conversation. He said he'd done that, he'd done enough of it. What he want, wanted to do for the rest of his life, which ended up being about a decade, was to just write and be with his family. And that the writing, you know, the writing speaks for itself. Uh, he was the most eloquent. It was so beautiful just listening to him speak, smart, um, politically astute and a, a real human and an artist absolutely incredible and i haven't read his stuff i was never into that genre but i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a go because he was it's really inspirational just a beautiful human to hear and to hear the english language spoken that way um it mm. shames us all mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I always treasure those moments where you see an interview like that with with someone uh you know well admired uh writer artist i mean i always think of uh there's this great series of interviews with Akira Kurosawa that they would uh, put on a lot of DVDs beforehand mm -hmm. in the movies. And there's so many moments in those that I just love where, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, how do you become a director? People ask all the time, how, how do you become a great director like Akira Kurosawa? And he said, look, like, you know, just start with, um, start with writing screenplays. You need a lot of things to make a movie. To write a screenplay, you need paper and pencil. So, right. you know, just start right yeah. there. And I, I feel like, especially, I mean, I, I don't know, this might not be true, but my 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 worry is that some of that kind of uh, social knowledge from kind of creators to young people that are maybe looking to make something isn't really getting transmitted quite as much, or maybe it's just getting lost in the deluge of other information. But what what do you um, mean exactly? Uh, what what information exactly? Just like uh, like a, 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 say for example, a writer talking about writing, you know, uh -huh. and talking about their process. Yeah. And, and, and a young person being exposed to that in a way where it can help them thinking about their own uh, creative process. Like yeah. maybe I'm just, maybe I've been unlucky and I haven't been exposed to it as much, but I feel as though mentorship in that, in that respect is, is a little bit, uh, is waning and, and that might have to do a little bit with, um, I don't know, the cutthroat self-centered nature of, uh, of cultural production, or it's probably just that, that things are probably lost in the flood of, of other like entertainment products and distractions that we all have um yeah but i always I, find it super fascinating like there's a really famous i think it was an interview or a conversation between Truffaut and hitchcock that oh yeah yeah that's um, a famous book also of those interviews yeah yeah, yeah. and I, like i don't know i don't know if that kind of thing is being put out there now and i feel like there's there's also and this is something i talked about with a previous guest uh, there's a there's a uh perspective out there among certainly a lot of young people that there's you know everything that's been that needed to be done or could be done has been done and everything that needed to be made or, or, or could be made has been made. Everything that needed to be said has been said. Like not, yeah. not, not even not even allowing for, you know, originality of expression either. It's just like, that, we're, all, we're just gonna rehash everything. But that's real, that's real bullshit. Or um, it's, it's very egocentric to have the idea that now I'm at the moment when everything has been said, when in fact, throughout human history, I think people have had that 
feeling. It's all been said. In fact, um, I have a friend who uh, he says, and I've never fact-checked this, and he told it to me 30 years ago, but he said that maybe the earliest or one of the earliest poems ever discovered, like a, like a, on, a, on the wall of a cave, mm -hmm. like a many thousands of years old poem, begins with the lines that says, I know it's all been said before. <laughs> but dot, dot, dot. so it's like a love poem that's like five thousand years old and that's how it begins so that's, that's awesome yeah i don't know if it's true but it should be uh if it isn't true it definitely should be yeah i mean and also you know it's not, it's not just a matter like treating art as though it's a race to like somehow like come up with the like an original insight and then lay claim to it like it's 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 not that at all it's much more you know someone's life experience uh flavoring what they decide to work on and then they send that out there in the world and then that speaks to someone else and and those two yeah. people are connected by that moment like i remember reading you know a poem by uh a very famous i can't remember his name chinese poet from you know thousands of years ago and i was okay. reading it and i was just like this is how i felt today like it's remarkable it's a remarkable thing huh. um there it is yeah the beauty the beauty of art ethan yes the beauty of art and the longevity um, yeah, oh, that's what they said. That's what they said in uh, in Latin, right? Uh, um, life life is short, art is long. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic! I've never heard yeah. that before. Yeah, that's a wow. uh, uh, ars lunga vita brevis. Art is long. Uh, of course, yeah, yeah, of course. I did. I did fail a couple of Latin classes, so I do understand. Yeah, I only that. took. I only took one year of. Uh, I only took one year of. Um, oh Jesus! An alarm. Yeah, I took just one or two years of Latin. It wasn't my forte. If you're getting a call from Jesus, you can you can take it. Don't worry. Um, yeah, let me just uh hello. Yep. Uh yep. Yep. Okay, that was Jesus. And uh it's all good. No. Okay. Is he gonna be meeting us for margaritas later? Yes. Margaritas. Margaritas. Uh, um so before oh, oh, like, oh, let me say this, by okay, the way. A, a singer I sang with in Spain. Uh, in 2014, we were in the opera of Brokeback Mountain at the opera in Madrid, and he had the lead role, and he's in Vancouver, so you might know him. Okay, what's his name? His name is Daniel Okulich, Dan, Dan Okulich, a very fine singer, and um, you should check check out uh, Brokeback Mountain, the opera, which not only was it an opera and a really good gig for me, but it became the first joke I wrote when I got back to doing stand-up comedy a number of years ago. <laughs> And the joke, I'll tell it since this has been too serious, this interview, the joke is um, I was in uh, Brokeback Mountain, the opera. Yeah, they, they, they did turn Brokeback Mountain into an opera. Apparently the movie wasn't gay enough. <laughs> I knew it was going to be something, but I, I didn't expect it to well, be that good. Well done. It, well does, done. it, does, it does have to be something <laughs> given that title. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, well, uh, just to transition to the last, um, uh, to, to another area, I mean, you are the son of a psychologist, um, yes. which as far as I'm concerned, makes you an, ex an expert, certainly uh, compared to sure. me. Um, sure. I've heard you comment uh, quite uh, eloquently and, and comically on a few psychological topics. I mean, personally, I've always been fascinated with, uh, with foibles of all types. Uh -huh. um, and I'm curious uh, if, if as the son of a psychiatrist, you have, or psychologist, I don't, don't remember, I don't know exactly what his title is, um, what uh, perhaps 
what, what insights you could pass on to the listeners or perhaps what uh, that you've some that you've been able to apply to your own life or, or perhaps there are insights that you've completely failed to apply to your own life that you could also um, pass on yeah i don't know and i don't claim to have any expertise at all although that's been a very fun and funny running gag on uh david feldman uh the, the feldman show uh when when i've had the joy of appearing on thursday evenings it's along with my dad who's a psychoanalyst um and um so we've gotten into all those topics because the format, which it, it was, it's a funny, it was, it's been really great. Uh, it's been a fun way to spend time with my father also. But the format is uh, David will ask me kind of uh, as though I'm the, the professional, as though, as though I know something, <laughs> even though I know nothing. I know as a patient, I've, I've been in therapy in my life and I've been, I, you know, I've been around a lot of these Freudian types through my dad's. Anyhow, so that, but no, here's what I'll say. If people are late, like if you find yourself being late a lot or people are late to meet you, um, th there's no good excuse for that. They are, they are being rude and it's a very hostile thing to make someone else wait. So if you have like a, a self-deluding story you tell yourself about that habit of yours to make other people wait like well i'm just always this or i have that it's just part of my i'm just very whatever i'm very artsy or i'm not very organized or or i i get distracted none of that matters you're just being a dick <laughs> don't make people wait but if however if you have to this is really critical and this applies right now because i was late for our interview just now so um, i want to point this out if you're going to be late, you can't do them. I'm sorry to call it this, but you can't do the millennial thing. Like if you're meeting someone at three, you can't do the millennial thing of texting them at 2.58 or at 3.02 and saying, sorry, I'm late. That is too late for the person to adjust their plans. If you're going to be late, you have to give them an hour or a half hour's notice of your lateness. That's my big theory about human foibles. Just be on time. Could you just wait for a second? I'm just looking at my Instagram here. Hold on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think that's. See, it's funny. I I asked for a deep psychological insight, and you and you explain just basic manners, which is again something else nobody has any concept of no. anymore. You know, it's. I, I hate to say it, but what, everything you just said very much applies to my my own life. So it's very yeah, useful. But, well, two things I want to add to this. One is that a lot of what I just said doesn't apply in the pandemic world because no one's meeting anyone anywhere and zoom if you're late to zoom the person's just in their kitchen anyway it's not that big a deal um, but the other thing i want to say is that i believe again this is second hand or third hand so you'll have to confirm this but i believe when asked to explain it all in a single idea the dalai lama himself said you know someone said can you just explain the whole approach the whole how would you like what's it all about he said be on time, like leave early. I think wow. that's what he said, leave early for places because then you're not gonna be in a rush. You're not gonna be stressed. The other person's not gonna be stressed. So that was the Dalai Lama, leave early, leave early. I mean, it's simple. Just take that to heart, people, leave early. Um, I like that a lot, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, it is there is a lot of anxiety and stress around that if, if, you're, if you're in a rush. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the other hand, what do I know? Um, be late. <laughs> I don't know. Show up whenever you want. The other thing, it, 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 it's contradicted by one of 
well, maybe it's not a contradiction, but I have a joke about, or I have the germ of a joke, which is about the idea that like people always feel bad when they have to cancel plans. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. I need to cancel. But you really, you definitely shouldn't be sorry when you cancel because when you cancel plans, the other person is thrilled. Oh yeah. Everyone yeah. loves it. They love it when you cancel. It's like having a snow day. It's like suddenly you get this, you thought you had that block of time tomorrow taken up and suddenly it's wide open. You can do whatever you want. You can go to the circus, you can take a nap. It's the most, it's the greatest thing in the world when you get canceled on. So you, you don't never, get along with your, you don't get along with your friends very much, do you? No, I love my <laughs> friends, but, but if you, if you cancel, maybe this is an oh, older- no, it's, no, it's totally a thing. It's totally a thing. Yeah. Like people, people are disappointed if you don't cancel. Yeah, I think that there, I, I think that, that, that's another, it's probably again, not a real deep psychological insight. Um, but here, if, we, if, we, if you're still looking for something a little more profound, um, you know, people say uh, life is short, but it, it's not, it's extremely long. So don't, don't feel that pressure of, man, life is short. I gotta, it's, it goes on. It, 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 it's, uh, mm. That's interesting. You know um, it reminds me of, of something. I think it was, uh, I think she was a psychologist. She might've been maybe a neuroscientist. It was a Ted talk. And she was talking about these studies that they had done with people and their, um, kind of their, their ability to how, how they manage their lives and organize their lives vis-a-vis uh, -vis their concept of, of themselves in time. So uh -huh. um, they would, the way it works is you'd, you'd ask everyone in the room to say, okay, imagine yourself in 30 years and imagine like, and then tell us like how similar you think you'll be, like how much you identify with that person in 30 years. Uh -huh. And basically the people that didn't really identify with themselves in 30 years that thought, oh, you know, my life will be totally different then, you know, I'm not, I don't even really need to think about it at this point. Um, they're the people that like are bad at saving money and organizing their life. Whereas the people that identify with themselves in the future uh -huh. are the ones that are, that are better at kind of managing um, the kind of arc of their, of their life in, in huh. organizationally, which I thought was really interesting. Like this concept of like, how much do you identify with your future or even former self? Yeah. Like, is, am I the same person I was when I was a child? Am I the same person I will be when I'm 75? For yeah, me personally, I don't not, really feel that way, but I think other people do. Yeah. yeah, and if I'm not the same person, then fuck him, and I'm not saving any money for him. That's, yeah. That's like, it's screw like, him. Seinfeld's joke, about how, Seinfeld's joke about how evening guy is always screwing over morning guy. It's like, ah, it's not my problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, well, that's interesting. One other... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I definitely have a sense of being the same person. I've gone through many different kind of emotional and changes and career changes and all sorts of things. But I definitely have that feeling of being that same human on the inside. Well, you're so well adjusted. I'm, I'm, I'm cavelling here. It's like, oh, um, but, but I think for me, actually, my journey has been um, more like I'm learning more and more to accept that I'm the same person the, the whole time. Uh -huh. Whereas I think in the past that, you know, there was this fantasy of like, Oh, maybe I'll be Superman or, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, well, that's, that's definitely an age thing. Can I ask how old you are? Or I'm 30, 37, okay. no, 38, 38. Yeah. So I'm 52. So I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I just turned uh, 52. So I think that is an age thing where you, uh, not necessarily, but it, it, it would stand to reason that you kind of 
sink in more to an understanding and maybe even a being comfortable with the fact that this is me. Uh, I can make certain changes and certain decisions, but I'm not turning into a whole nother thing. Uh, mm. that, that is, mm. I think that is a big part of it. Mm. And actually that is a, maybe that does touch on something. I, I'm not gonna say it's profound, but it's, it's, it's deeper than just make sure you're on time places, um, which is that that's sort of uh, where the, the idea of uh, happiness or being a satisfied person where that comes in. Um, for me, getting more comfortable and uh, happier over the years is hand in glove with that accepting that um, there's no giant transformation that has to happen or that can happen. You can make changes, but I used to, my, in my twenties, I was just always preparing the next, the next escape to another continent or another career or another anything. I was just so uncomfortable in my own skin. Mm. So that's, yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. But I think, I think those kinds of intuitive realizations are not, are not necessarily super common, you know? So it's it's that is a pretty big thing it kind of makes me think of there's a great line in um that laura dern series that mike white wrote years ago enlightened i don't know if you ever saw that one it's no. actually like one of, of of all the hbo shows that ever dealt with spirituality i kind of appreciated its approach the most um has a really good soundtrack by mark mothersbaugh devo as well but there's um she's kind of this corporate type woman who has kind of a uh I mean, there's really no other way to put a spiritual awakening of sorts um and it's a very it's a satirical show but also Honestly, it's it's quite sincere, I think, in its treatment of spirituality. Um, and she has a great line where she says, "There's there isn't always something missing," you know, oh, and yeah. like that's a big that's a big part of her character's journey is that she realizes that there that that she's just always gone through her life feeling as though something must be missing, and when she right. realized that that there wasn't always something missing, that she could just kind of have that peace. Yeah, yeah, I think I I uh, I definitely uh, identify with that, and. It, Contrary to what I was saying before, it's, I, I still feel that, although I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't suffer the same way I used to, but I still do feel that, that there is something missing. Mm. So I'm driven by that. Uh, I'm driven or, or haunted by that feeling. So that, yeah. that, has, that hasn't gone away completely, but it's, it's less. Uh, oh, I mean, I mean, I don't think it ever necessarily should go away completely, but just that idea that it's that you always feel like there's something missing. That if if you don't see something missing, you have to think of something else or imagine something else, yeah. or manufacture something else that's missing. You know, I just I mean, obviously up, things are miss, but but I think I think that 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 absence can at times uh, be kind of a a, a psychic um, image, maybe like like for example, even. Um, and I wanted to trend, I wanted to mention one other uh, thing I heard the Dalai Lama say one, one time that I thought was really fascinating and pertains to this is he was saying, you know, if you ever feel as though someone's treating you unkind, um, they're not. That's their unkindness is just an echo of the unkindness done towards them, and it's just mm -hmm. it's just moving along. I thought that was quite fascinating. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a great thing to be aware of. If you can, uh, if you can summon that idea while right at that moment when someone's being a dick towards you, that's very powerful. I, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't think I know how to do that, but I aspire to it. By the way, I just looked up that show and I'm definitely going to watch it because Mike White is a genius. And oh, he's so good. Yeah, he's a great actor too. I mean, I'm sure you've seen Chuck and Buck. Yes, of course. I actually only saw that recently. Like I remember seeing it you know, I remember the, I can still remember the poster at the art house in my, in my hometown yeah. and then reading the, the taglines or whatever on the poster saying, oh, it's like twisted and, and 
ridiculously funny. And like, I don't really think it's, it's a comedy. Cause I, when I saw, when I saw the way they marketed it, I was like, oh, this is some kind of like off kilter comedy, but it's like, I mean, it's very, very funny and it has incredible laughs in it, but it's probably yeah. one of the most like human films I've ever seen. Yeah. It's just yeah, like it's, it's, it's amazing and disturbing. And that's a, that's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how much time you got left here, man? We can start the wind up procedure if you want before we, uh, before yeah, we, no, no, whatever, whatever you want to do. Thoughts. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so what's going on vis-a-vis -vis, like comedy for you right now? I mean, are you, is that, is that, was that part of one of the reasons why you relocated temporarily? Or are you, um, are you able to do much? Are you writing? Um, I've been doing a lot of shows online, including, um, you know, the Feldman show, what we're doing right now. I've done a bunch of podcasts and I do a daily show where I interview people, uh, mostly comedians, actors, writers. I do that at noon on Instagram live noon Eastern um, from my hammock. Um, nice. So that's, that's something I had never done before. I, I had always wanted to do that. And then the pandemic came along and I had no reason not to. Um, what is, uh, what is your Instagram handle? Oh, thanks. It's at E Hershenfeld at E and then Hershenfeld is H-E-R-S-C-H-E-N-F-E-L-D. So at E Hershenfeld weekdays at noon. Sometimes I'll do that on Zoom with, with, uh, with Facebook Live if people prefer, but nine times out of 10, it's Instagram Live. That's been fun. And, uh, um, and I've been doing a lot of, you know, I, I got a one good film gig uh, since everything went weird. Uh, I was down in Atlanta for that job in the Netflix bubble. Um, and then I've done a bunch of other TV uh, auditions. I got one other thing that that's coming out, which is a, it's an interesting show. It's a, it's called Emergency Call. It's a sort of a reality. It's a reality show about a 911 call center workers. And then they hire actors to play the callers when there's legal reasons why they can't play the original tape. So oh. I recorded it. Yeah. So I recorded a bunch of voices for that. That's really interesting. That actually jives with something I've been working on. Um, have you ever, have you ever seen that show, Forensic Files? It's like you know, you know one, of those, one of those true crime true crime shows. It's like I love that show because you know they'll play the nine one one call. Yeah, you'd be listening to the guy, and he's like, "My wife is dead." Oh my god! Yeah. And you're like thinking to yourself, "Oh man!" Like yeah, he's telling the truth, and then you listen to it again, and you're like, "Oh no, his acting's off." <laughs> and I just I'm super fascinated. Oh, by like by like people that have just murdered a family member and are trying to like act over the nine one one call, it's oh, very yeah. Yeah. very macabre. That's a good acting challenge. Uh, I I do like those true crime shows, so it's fun to I have a little you know some some things in there, um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's what's been going on. Uh, cool. Well, actually, vis-a-vis -vis, or uh, apropos something we were talking about before, you know, I I, I definitely noted in Frank Langella's appearance on uh, Mark Maron's show that um, he asked him what he was working on, and Frank Langella was just like, "No, I'm not getting any scripts these days." So we should send him a copy of our Ibsen disco adaptation because he could be perfect for that kind of project. Yeah. You know, yeah, we need someone with a little gravitas. Yeah, the master builder was it, or no? It's uh, we're gonna do Enemy of the People. Oh, Enemy of the People. Okay, yeah. Enemy of the People. Which I think, you know, like cries out for a musical adaptation because it's a very joyful, you know, extremely uplifting ending. I remember I loved Ibsen when I was in high school and we read it for the first time, but I, I haven't really read any Ibsen in many years. So I have to take another look at it. 
Oh yeah, he's got um, Master Builders is definitely a great one. Um, yeah. I haven't I haven't read him in years either. But Head of Gabler, Wild Duck. I mean, I know that I, Duck, I, yeah. I have the book. I got the book. Um, but I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna read some of this stuff. I really liked it. We had a course on Ibsen and Shaw in high school mm-hmm. with a terrific teacher named John Logri. I was blessed to have these amazing teachers at the school I went to. He then went out to author some books, and uh, he was a high school English teacher. So it was it was pretty cool. Mm. um well uh i'm so glad you had time to talk we can probably wind it down there i'll let you get back to your your um your jet setting playboy-esque lifestyle yeah Um, just just me and the me and the dogs and uh we're gonna uh maybe we'll go for a walk but thank you this has been a lot of fun yeah i really enjoyed it too i mean i can always send i can send you audio if you wanted to cross post it or anything like that um and stay on the line so i can yell at you for being late and be really unkind sure (laughs) Yeah, when, uh, when um, yeah, whenever whenever you have a link to it or whatever, I'll just share it far and wide. Oh, can you also tell people to look at a very Bernie Christmas, which is a track from my album? Which a very Bernie Christmas is one of my beloved bits, uh, which is on my album Thug Thug Jew. And then the record company uh, a few weeks ago they animated that bit, and it's out there on on YouTube. Uh, a very Bernie Christmas. Please have a look and a laugh, um, and then share it if you like it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, awesome, dude. Yeah. You're, you're a really talented guy. So it was thank really, you. really fun to get a chance to, uh, to talk to you for so long. So um, I'll yeah, probably have to try and goad you and cajole you at some point to come back on again. Yeah. But, I'd love uh, to. Feel, and, uh, feel free to ignore all my emails uh, the same way my ex-girlfriends do though. So that's never, the standard operating never. procedure. <laughs> I, by the way, I have to speak, I have to speak with them. They've been, that, that's not nice. Uh, that's not cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I am working on a viral marketing campaign where I, I do message all of my exes and tell them that the rumors that I've been talking about them on the podcast aren't true, and that, that you know I would oh. never, I would never say anything that terrible about them, that's and they should good. just, they should just trust that you know I would never betray that their trust that way. So, depending on how promiscuous you were, that could either be a really good or not so good marketing. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> like if you have twenty five exes, that could really no. uh, get the algorithm going. But if you have two. Eh. I don't know if I have 25 X's, but I probably have like, you know, a baker's dozen worth of people that, you know, still clench their fist and grit their teeth at my memory. I like it. I want to, I want to see the results. I want to see the data on that marketing. (laughs) 